This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. You are listening to a pleasure podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Welcome back to Private Parts Unknown, a podcast about love and sexuality around the world. I'm Courtney Kosak, and last time we celebrated our 100th episode with world record holding squirter Lola Jean. And I thought it would be perfect to follow that up with some good old fashioned fisting. And our guide today is a fisting expert. He's a professional. He literally teaches people how to fist safely for work. And that is very important as we will learn. Hi, my name is Alexander Cheeves. I'm a sex writer, sex worker, sex educator. And I wrote the book, My Love is a Beast, Confessions from Unbound Edition Press. On social media, Alexander goes by Bad Alex Cheeves, and I think that handle is very apropos. Today, we also talk about his experience coming out, kink, how he got started as a sex worker, different consent cultures, and his very horny book about his butthole. His words, not mine. (laughs) Y'all are gonna love Alex, so let's get into it. I think I discovered you on Good Sex. You did an episode about fisting, but then I started digging into more about your history and you're such an interesting person and you've done so much interesting sex writing. So I kind of want to just cover it all, (laughs) if that's okay. Sounds great. Yeah, let's do it. So let's start at the beginning. I think I heard you grew up in kind of like a religious household. Like where did you grow up and what were the messages around sexuality that you were getting? So we're starting deep. Um, (laughs) Yeah. um, So my parents are evangelical Baptists and uh, they were medical missionaries in Zambia. And so I lived in Zambia for a few years and we spent time in Johannesburg and we spent time in in other parts of South Africa and and traveled quite a bit. And they actually founded an orphanage. Um, Oh. Yeah. it's It's a Christian orphanage and so they actually still go over there quite frequently in fact i was going over there quite frequently until they learned that i was not in fact a christian and then it's been sort of tacitly understood that i won't probably go back um i'm probably a bad influence so was that a conflict like the religion that you're mentioning i mean it sounds like they're not very accepting of queerness they they've come along as far as they can. I, I try not to be too brutal on them. The book the book already was pretty brutal, and a lot of articles have been really brutal. Um, I'm so scared that I've made them out to be like awful people. They're really wonderful people, and they probably like many parents, right? They made a lot of mistakes and didn't quite know how to be parents when push came to shove. They've made a lot of progress, but yes, at one point in time, our relationship was very fractious and divisive and pretty pretty rough it was a conflict me i mean i was i was a young 
homo being raised by these strident conservative Christians. And by that, and by the time I came out, we had moved back to Georgia. How old were you? I came out when I was, I mean, I, I didn't even come out. My dad sort of cornered me in my bedroom and was like, I think you're gay. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh my it, God. It, was, it was a lot worse than that. It was a terrible night, but I was 16 years old and I was in high school and we had traveled the world. And then we came back to this small town on a farm in the middle of nowhere in Georgia, like two hours from Atlanta. And me and my sister were completely desocialized. We hadn't interacted with anybody our age because we'd been traveling overseas. So it right. was literally mean girls. Yes. <laughs> and that's what everybody says. But it, I was literally, whatever her name is from Mean Girls, where I had just come from Africa. I didn't know anything about American culture. I missed all of Christina Aguilera. And, uh, <laughs> Her entire reign? That's a long time. <laughs> but, well, not, I mean, her peak. Because now, because like you could, you could ask me to like pinpoint a Christina Aguilera song and I look at like when it hit and I was like, oh, I was, yeah, I wasn't here. <laughs> um, yeah, we came back to the States and we were in this small town in the middle of the South where everyone's homophobic and racist. And that's the moment that I decide that I'm going to be me. Um, You're right. It was pretty, it was a rough coming out. Did you have like friends or anybody that you could look to to kind of help you get through that period? Uh, um, not, no, not really. Like most little gay boys, I was really close to my English teacher, but that's kind of about it. So oh. it was pretty, it was pretty intense. It was, but then I went to college and I escaped and everything was okay. So when did you kind of start like writing your way out of it or? writing about your sexuality and and kind of also just maybe finding some more self-acceptance i hit college really hard when it comes to sex my parents didn't teach me anything about sexual health or sexual education and i went to college in, in the south so not a single adult taught me about hiv um before i tested positive four years later so um i was immediately quickly very promiscuous i was having a lot of sex i did not know the risks so all four years i was i kind of dove hard and i became very sexual very quickly and i only started writing about it actually in my very last year of school we had to keep a blog as a classroom assignment my major was writing and it's the blog that i still run it started off as a school assignment oh that's so cool yeah it was actually something that i never intended to do i wanted to teach literature but then a magazine in chicago found the blog and asked me to be a columnist there and then i got a job at the advocate in la and then i have the a rest book is history. Your, yeah <laughs> yeah so okay after that or during that promiscuous phase you found out you were hiv positive right mm -hmm. i mean it's it's kind of interesting there's so many advancements and it's kind of like a totally different experience yeah. it must be for you living it with it then and now yeah totally different world so was it kind of shocking at the beginning and like how did you find your footing in that well i'm just old enough to where people who kind of tested positive around the same time that i did will really be the last generation to sort of remember what life was like before PrEP. My first two years with HIV were really, really tough because the minute I told anybody I was positive, they blocked me on a dating app, they blocked me online, or they, nobody knew anything about it really. Right. And I, I also, I was in a small town. So, you know, there wasn't any 
awareness. There wasn't any education. None of my peers, all of whom were having sex and lots of sex, were versed on HIV or even knew the risks, which is terrifying. Um, And then PrEP happened. It's difficult for me to say now because in hindsight, I say that what changed my life was everybody suddenly learning about pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP, which is a daily pill that prevents HIV for HIV negative people. It really only started kind of becoming part of the lexicon around 2015 is sort of, it seems when it really exploded, which means even though it was approved by the FDA the year that I tested positive, it took like two years for people to really start hearing about it and adopting it. So I just missed the boat on it. And now, now it's like every gay man I meet, I assume he's either HIV positive or on prep. Like it's so ubiquitous now that I no longer even have that conversation before sex anymore. Cause I just assume that everyone's on prep or already on treatment. But before prep, it was a really different world. The dating world was really tough. I, I didn't have sex. I, I, or I, if I did have sex, I only had sex with other HIV positive people. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy because even when you were diagnosed, like over the previous generation, like it was so much better. It was kind of like a more privileged experience. And then now it's made that many more strides. How do you say, sorry, you said that one more I time. mean, like the 80s version versus when you were diagnosed versus if you were diagnosed today, like those are vastly different experiences. Vastly different worlds. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Like, I tell everybody that even though I had it kind of hard for a couple of years, I'm so lucky that I wasn't born 10 years earlier. Yeah. I mean, even, I mean, honestly, five years earlier, like I only know this cause I'm older now and I can look back and see the timeline, but I was really hurt by my parents response to me being gay. But now I think like when that was, that was 2009, maybe. Uh-huh. And which means that like, I can trace like how old they were when they first probably heard about gay people, which was undoubtedly through AIDS, right? right. So there, I mean, they were really kind of coming of age during the AIDS crisis. They're both doctors. So they witnessed it pretty closely. They witnessed AIDS in Africa as medical professionals. And so their only context for my life was a really brutal death that they witnessed pretty up close for years and years. So in a sense, of course they panicked, right? right? Like they thought I was gonna die a horrible, long, slow death. And if I had been born much earlier, I very well might have. So even just over the course of my life, in fact, just the course of the 10 years that I've been positive, the landscape for being HIV positive has changed dramatically. Like when I first started medication, they put me on a single pill regimen and they didn't want me to go on a single pill regimen because there were only two. And they thought that if my adherence wasn't good, that I would develop a resistance to it and that there wouldn't be any more single pill regimens um, and that I would have to go back on a cocktail. And now there's like 20 single pill regimens. So there's no real fear of there still is drug resistance if you don't have good adherence, but there are more options now. And that's just 10 years. Yeah. And now there's the injectable. So the landscape for medications exponentially changing. Yeah, I watched that Andy Warhol documentary and then um, Halston, and it was just like, I mean, truly just the worst epidemic, and we've come a long way. And that's within living memory. Yeah. Like, there are many people alive now who aren't that old who remember it like it was yesterday. 
Hey privates, whether you are with a new partner or you just want to stay on top of your sexual health, STI testing should be a part of your safe sex practice. And I gotta say, it is such a pain in the ass to go through your doctor on this. You have to make an appointment and then they have to order the test for you. But now you can take control of your sexual health with quick and convenient STD testing that you can order online for yourself at stdcheck.com. STDcheck.com is the leader in reliable and affordable lab-based STI testing. Order online and go right to one of their certified labs. There is no doctor visit required, and you will get results within one to two days after testing. STDcheck.com offers confidential and convenient STI testing in labs across the U.S. They offer a wide variety of reliable tests, including a comprehensive 10-panel test, and follow-up doctor consultations. With multiple online payment options and an easy and private online purchase option, stdcheck.com makes STI testing easy and protects your privacy. Get peace of mind with an STD check from stdcheck.com, where you can purchase a range of STI tests, get tested at a CLIA-certified lab, and be confident in your results. In my experience, STI testing is so important. Before my fiance and I went exclusive, we both got STI testing. It was actually something that I demanded before we stopped using condoms. It's just risky to be out there maybe getting diseases from other people that have long-term consequences and you don't want that. So right now, stdcheck.com is offering Private Parts Unknown listeners $10 off your order. Just go to ppupod.com, click STD check, and use code PRIVATE to get $10 off your next STI test. That is ppupod.com and use code PRIVATE to get tested. Please support the show by using the link in the episode description. Stay safe out there, privates. Hey, privates. Our sponsor, Fleshlight, can help you reach new heights with your self-pleasure. Fleshlight is the number one selling male sex toy in the world. And at Fleshlight, you can explore sex toys with expert guides and advice, especially if you're a beginner or you're looking to level up. If you've been listening to this show for a while, you know how much I love sex toys. I am a huge advocate of self-pleasure and I have a really good time with all of my vibrators and accessories. And I think you should feel free to do the same. It's a great way to discover exactly what you like and make sure you are satisfied, which helps you approach, you know, your IRL relationships with a little more chill, a little more ease, a little bit more knowing what you want. And I think that is good for everyone involved. So listen, if you're a horn dog, there is no shame in your game. Get yourself a Fleshlight. And with the Fleshlight Girls series, you can embrace your wildest porn star fantasies with a different porn actress every night. With a variety of models, sensations, and intensities, you can live out limitless fantasies. And you can automate your fantasies with the universal launch that fits most Fleshlight products. With its innovative touch control system, just set the controls, sit back, and enjoy. It puts the 
pleasure in your hands. Your pleasure is in your complete control and as the ultimate male pleasure device on the market, it's as versatile as you are. It's anatomical, stamina building, vibrating, or made for couples, you name it. You define your luxury moment. And right now, Fleshlight is offering Private Parts Unknown listeners 10% off your order with our code PRIVATE. So just go to ppupod.com, that's the website, ppupod.com, and click Fleshlight, and use promo code PRIVATE to get 10% off your new delicious device. Again, that is ppupod.com, and enter code PRIVATE. And it really helps support the show. So by using the link in the episode description, we can all be horny together and you can keep this podcast going. So get yourself a flashlight and get yourself off. Kind of a sharp U-turn from there, but let's get into some kink if that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> let's do it. Um, so, I mean, you have a very kinky sex life from what I understand. And I, I heard you say something very interesting, which is that sometimes disgust, initial disgust means you're into something. If you could kind of explain that. I have, it's an operative theory. It's a working theory. I'm not the first person to say this. I think a lot of people have thought this before, but strong reactions to something that you encounter sexually, I think tend to predict that you're gonna have some that i mean it's obviously triggering something for you right it's like hate and love are like opposite sides of the coin or whatever well well, really yeah and like disgust a lot of fetishes come from disgust there's even a theory behind because we don't really know what creates fetishes a fetish is just a paraphilia it's a non-normative a kink is a non-normative sexual experience or attraction we don't know what makes them. In fact, one theory behind kink is that it is the, the mind's way of coping with something that would otherwise be abhorrent to somebody, which actually, if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. Because think about the things that our fetishes are sort of wrapped around. They tend to be wrapped around things that socially and culturally are taboo. Right. So, you know, feces and piss and... Mm-hmm and anonymous sex and risky sex, like stuff that we tend to shame and pathologize or relegate to the gutter tend to be things that we create fetishes around. So there might be some truth to that. There might be an element of disgust that's necessary to have a kink, to have a fetish. And um, I find that when someone reacts really, really strongly to something that they encounter that's new, it probably means they're into it. Like, you're like, like talk to me in six months. Well, like, <laughs> you'll be running this scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah, talk to me in a year. Yeah, because when someone reacts with a shrug, then you're, meh, you're like, uh, you're probably not into that. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so tips for exploring kink. <laughs> tips for exploring kink. It's tough because now it's so much easier than it ever was before. The internet has just, kink and Twitter were made for each other. Right. I tell everybody my rule of thumb, because I get a lot of questions about this. My rule of thumb is that the internet is a supplemental tool for a social life, but it is not a social life. So you can be as versed as you like in a, in a kink from the internet, but it, it's not the same as actually being at an in-person event. So if you think, if you know you're kinky, if you know there's, there's something you're really into, 
and you want to experience it, do everything you can to go to some physical event where it's happening that may involve some degree of travel. Like you might have to go to the nearest city and go to a leather bar or go to a convention and rent a hotel ticket. And, and I mean, you know, there's some costs associated with that, but I think it's incredibly important for kinksters to find in-person spaces. Because I mean, that's because it's safer, right? Like yeah. the internet is filled with misleading information. And I think that especially knowledge about kink becomes really risky when you only learn about it from the internet. Like, because there's a lot of competition, there's a lot of performance, there's a lot of, there's a lot of misinformation. Whereas when you can establish real connections with real people that share your kinks and can teach you, even if, whether in a sexual capacity or otherwise, then you can actually learn the real way that people do these things as opposed yeah. to just reading about it online. There are also some amazing online sex educators that do kind of facilitate those like events or training if you like yeah. wanted to dip your toe in that way. Yeah, yeah. So like I said, I discovered you through the fisting episode. So I was like, I got to talk to this guy about fisting. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yep. When did you first realize you were into it? <laughs> the real story? Yeah, the real story. Okay, well, this is very embarrassing. I, oh my God. Um, so in college, I used to, oh, I can't believe I'm saying this. In college, I used to go to the tanning, <laughs> the tanning bed like four times a week, like so much. I mean, it was just something that I did. And I would, this is how bored I, I mean, I was in a very small town and there was nothing to do. And so I was like, well, I'll just hang out in the parking lot outside the tanning salon. <laughs> and that's what I would do. And, it, and if it was raining and I didn't want to like get wet, I would just sit in my car looking at porn, waiting to go to the tanning salon. And one day I remember sitting in my car, looking up porn on my phone, probably on like Tumblr back when Tumblr had porn. Tumblr had great porn. Well, I had the best porn, right? I probably stumbled onto a Tumblr account that had fisting on it. And I remember the first video I saw was really intense. It wasn't like a mild fisting video. It was like a prolapse. Like it was way more extreme than even what I watch now. And my initial reaction was so visceral and strong that I remember that the girl who I was really good friends with in the tanning salon asked me what was wrong when I went in <laughs> to get a bed. She was like, are you okay? <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. So that was my first encounter with fisting. And honestly, I thought, I didn't think it was real. In fact, I remember going back to the video a few days later and thinking like, is this fake? I watched it again. I was like, nope, that's not fake. That's real. That's real. This exists. I can't unsee this now. How long before you consummated your fetish and found somebody you could do it with? Years. Years? Yeah. Because think about it. This is like, fisting for me really kind of tracks the journey of a fetish. You discover it, revulsion. Yes. I would never do that. That's way too extreme. That's way too dangerous. And then because it exists, revulsion turns to curiosity. So you're like, all right, I might watch this every now and then. Maybe learn a little bit about it. I found like more videos, but it still was relegated to the terrain of stuff that I would watch on camera, mm -hmm. but would never, ever do. And then I, I graduated from college. I moved to San Francisco. I moved to LA. And it, you know, maybe a couple years later, yeah, it was probably it was probably around two years later. Was the first time that I even talked to anybody about possibly doing it. And even once I started asking around, 
I remember because I was a beginner, there was actually a lot of um, unwillingness to. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Do you feel that way about new people? Um, I hate admitting this, but I, ugh. I think fisting's tough. I think fisting is an anomaly in the fetish world because, I mean, it's a high risk activity. Like there's some health right. risk associated with it. So beginner tops learn from professional bottoms and beginner bottoms learn from very pro tops. Because if you're a beginner and beginner, you're very likely to hurt the other person, right? Right. So that means that if you're a beginner bottom, as I thought I was going to be, um, and as I was, that meant that I had to find a very skilled top who is also willing to go slow and be patient and teach somebody new how to do this. I've done that many, many times, especially as a sex worker now. I'm really good at working with beginners. And I can... Now that I've done it so much, I understand that it is exhausting. It is difficult. It is. You do have to have a lot of patience. You should get paid for that shit. <laughs> you should get paid for that shit. So um, <laughs> that's one reason why I have so much work in sex work is because it is hard to find somebody who can train you to do that. Interesting. Okay. So just some like 101 tips. On for, fisting? For fisting. Well, what I said before certainly applies. If you're a beginner, either as a top or as a bottom, I think it's really smart to get like, ideally an in-person connection with someone who's pretty experienced. Even if you're not necessarily that like sexually attracted to them, you might need to have just like a kind of a, a lesson, a mm -hmm. test run, like a practice round. The first person who fisted me, I wasn't super necessarily attracted to, but he was very experienced and he went slow and gave me this experience and it was a, a lesson. And, 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 and since then, over the years, I've actually had some really great sexual encounters with people who I wasn't necessarily sexually or physically attracted to, but who could teach me and could like show me new methods and new tricks. And actually, the, there have been many encounters where I've treated it like a, a lesson. I love that. And they've, they've been really great, actually. I'm really grateful for them. I've learned a lot from them. So you might need to have a, a few lesson rounds, you know, especially, especially as a top, because as a top, you know, you can hurt somebody so bad if you're not careful, if you don't use enough lube, if you don't know proper technique. I mean, it, it's a very, as you can imagine, it's very delicate tissue, you know. You, <laughs> blood is pretty commonly encountered. You have to not panic, but also recognize how much is normal versus how much is like a, concerning to worry about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You mentioned sex work escorting. Like how did you start? Yeah. Yeah. Let's start at the beginning. How did you get into it? The same way I think a lot of people start is I was in a bar and someone wants to go home with me and I'm not really interested. And then they kind of sweeten the deal a bit. They like, I'll throw a, I'll throw a hundred bucks at you and and then I, and, and that was just the way that I learned that I could like, I didn't treat it like a business. It was just like, oh, the right person might, might sweeten the deal every now and then. So I might get some extra money and maybe I should start like approaching people this way because it's money and you know, it's sex. It can't be that bad. I never once approached it like a, a form of work until, I mean, years after years later, because I started technically speaking, I started seeing clients. I wouldn't have called them clients then. I was just hooking up with people it was and like getting paid, paid date. Yeah, just like a paid date. I was doing that when I was like 18, 19. Oh, and really? I probably I probably did not start treating it like a business 
until I was, my God, how old was I in 2016? I mean, I was at least 24, 25. So what was the transition to like going pro? Going pro? Um, I met other sex workers. And then like on a website or did you, were you part of like an agency or whatever? Mm-mm. I never did the agency thing. Actually, it's, it's interesting how it started. I was writing for The Advocate. And when rentboy.com got shut down by the feds, I oh, yeah. covered the counter protests happening in West Hollywood. And everybody leading the counter protests were sex workers. And I interviewed a lot of people and met all these cool people. And this image I had in my head of like a prostitute, mm-hmm. you know, was proved completely false. Like I met people who were all body types, all skin colors, men, women, non-binary folks, like queer, straight. Like I met, I met, I, I like at these protests, which were so beautiful or counter protests, I saw such a range of queerness and such a range of body type and such a range of age to where I was like, oh, you can be a, a normal human being and actually have this as like your job. And treat it very professionally and be very, mm-hmm. be very professional about it. And that was sort of a, a light bulb switch. I was like, I'm not the hottest person in the room, but the fact that I've been doing this for six years means I'm able to do it and I can do it well. And that's when I started like asking around and asking people how much I should be charging and where I should be selling and where I should be advertising and how I should be conducting my business. And it was learning from sex workers actually truly it was learning from i gained much more knowledge from the women in my life the women sex workers who are really the professionals in this industry i think they always make more money than men it's the only industry where women make more money than men and they the women sex workers that i became close to in la were the ones who taught me everything i know i know the best sex workers and i feel like the media depiction before Because like, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily grow up knowing sex workers. So all you get is the media depiction. And then the reality is just not really like that. It's crazy. They're the most, they're they're like (laughs) Mr. Rogers. They're the most, you know, uh, everyday people in the best way possible. In fact, some of the most intelligent, well-educated, socially astute, Mm -hmm. most brilliant marketers, certainly, that I've ever met, most astute branding people are sex workers because they understand the concept of offering a particular service, having a brand, charging a premium, Mm -hmm. creating content or creating an aesthetic and sticking to a, sticking to a service. Like, I mean, it's a very difficult business to do well and you have to have a lot of savvy and a lot of smarts and, and self-control and self-restraint and a clear head to stay in the business for an extended amount of time. For sure. So yeah, they're, they're brilliant people and they're good people. What's the difference between your sex life as a sex worker and your sex life as a civilian? I have not had a lot of people ask me that question. <laughs> um, Whatever you're comfortable saying, but. Sure, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, it, it, it's very different. I mean, there's like the classic rule, like it's hard to love something that you do for work right Right. so like all i used to direct porn so like all the big famous porn tops they're all bottoms in real life and vice versa right like i top primarily for work because that's where the money is and so i'm almost exclusively a bottom in my personal life i think the biggest surprise that people have is that i'm not 
people read my work and they think that I'm having sex like every three hours. Like people think I'm some kind of like sex demon constantly fucking. And I actually am not a, I, am, I surprise people by not being a hypersexual person because it's work. I don't get FOMO. I never feel pressure to have sex, which is so nice because I, if I wait long enough, it's, at some point someone's going to hire me to do it. So it's like inevitably sex will come. So I never feel sexual pressure. In fact, quite the opposite. Sometimes I really like my breaks mm-hmm. because it's like taking a vacation. Mm-hmm. It's quite nice. And it also means that the threshold for intensity for me to really get into it is pretty high. So like I know people who have a lot of sex because they just kind of go to like a hookup after work. And I don't really do that. When I go out to have sex, like it's it's an event. Friday afternoon to Monday morning, like nonstop, crazy, wild fuck fest. And then I kind of get out of my system and I won't have sex for like a month. I go on these crazy high intensity bursts and I, all the, you know, quick kind of gentle, casual sex that happens. I think for a lot of people on a normal basis, like every couple of days or every week or however often people have, I don't know. I don't know how often people, normal people have sex. I think um, it varies. <laughs> I, I, I think it varies. Yeah. I mean, I have no, I have no, I have no way of knowing what that standard is, but like all the, the, the regular sex, I just don't have an appetite for like, uh, for me, it has to be like some high intensity kink or I'm just kind of like, mm-hmm. and are you doing high intensity kink with your clients or it's less into not quite less. so hardcore? Yeah. Yeah. Because with my clients, it, there's certainly a degree of risk involved in doing very, very heavy, intense fetish play. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't have your own space, it's very, very hard to do kink with clients. Mm-hmm. Very, very few clients want to provide the space to do that. And being as mobile as I am and traveling as often as I am, I generally speaking, I'm in places where I can't like create a sex dungeon. Right. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, I, I just, I'm, I'm right now I'm staying in a friend's place. So that's hard. It's hard to do kink without providing a kink-specific space. And on top of that, a lot of my clients are beginners. And so they're not quite there yet. Most of my clients are pretty, they're discovering sex for the first time, or they're returning to sex after a break. A lot of people who are much older and maybe coming out for the first time, or maybe recently divorced or recently retired, are my most common client. People who never explored sexually when they were younger and are just kind of getting into it. Uh-huh. Hustling, a gentleman's guide to the fine art of homosexual <laughs> prostitution by John yeah. Preston. I read that that was a guidebook for you. What did you learn from that book? Some of the information is a little antiquated because it, it's from, I can't remember when it was published. Like it's also it's also not in print anymore. Oh. Um, yeah, I've looked for it and I have a rare copy that I found in a used bookstore. Um, In it, I learned that you can be any age, any body type. I I basically learned that there are different categories of sex work for male sex workers. You're either providing a boyfriend experience or you're providing a very hot body or you're providing education or you're providing kink, which it basically just means that you're, that in order to best market yourself, you're siloed into these sort of pre-existing okay. kinds of sex work. And you can't be all of them. You have to kind of advertise yourself to a particular 
kind of experience. Some guys focus more on massage. Some guys, you know, their lane is porn. And I find that people who do porn really well tend to not see clients. So like porn is its own avenue that takes so much time and so much work that it tends to be your primary revenue source. Whereas people who see a lot of clients like me tend to not be the best at porn. Like I'm not a big, I'm not a porn star. I'm not good at it. I'm better in person than one-on-one. So from that book, I just kind of learned that there are avenues of sex uh-huh. work and, and the way that you advertise yourself in one avenue is very different from the way you advertise yourself in another. And you just kind of have to figure out what you're best at. Yeah. That's like the branding thing again, too. It's the branding thing. Yeah. My friend is a porn writer and he said, sometimes we're like, oh, there's not enough variety of porn or whatever, but it's like, you have to think about who's paying for the porn. (laughs) That determines these very specific things that we get. Also, one thing that I'm really encouraged by is kind of the democratization of porn. Like in the past, studios really mandated that we saw white, Mm able-bodied, traditionally fit people in porn. And now with like content platforms like OnlyFans and Just for Fans, you're seeing a greater increase in diversity in porn just because it allows anybody to profit from their own content. Thanks to the studio model kind of dying away, we are seeing an increase in diversity in porn, which is a good thing. Yeah, totally. So you're non-monogamous and used to joke that you never had sex with the same person twice. (laughs) I think I heard you say. That I used to joke about that. (laughs) (laughs) But then maybe the pandemic changed your relationship to sex. I'm curious to hear more about this. I mean, I think it changed everybody's relationship to sex, right? For sure. Yeah. I mean. Did it make you softer? (laughs) It made me... uh, Well, it made me a better sex worker because business just exploded after the pandemic. The pandemic did a lot of things. The pandemic expanded. Weirdly, I still don't know how it was related to the pandemic, but the pandemic was sort of the catalyst to make me, because I used to just call myself gay and I never really kind of bothered with like, yeah, I had had experiences with non-binary folks and trans folks, folks and cis women and trans women. And I knew that there was more to my sexuality than just a gay man. But I had kind of let that side go. You know, I had taken so many years to become happy as a gay man that I was like, okay, maybe I should just leave it here. In the pandemic, for whatever reason, it gave me enough time and space to realize that like, the word concept gay isn't really doing the job for me anymore. And it's one aspect of me and maybe even the dominant aspect of me, but there obviously is something else going on. So it actually kind of changed my orientation a bit or my sexual identity a little bit. That's really interesting. Really cool, right? Yeah. Yeah. So do you use the term queer more now or has it changed like your labeling or it's not about labeling? I really, really struggle with labels. I always have, like, even, I think, I mean, I think I've written about this, like, even gay, like, I took a long time coming around to gay. I understand queer as a concept, like, I get why it's so useful and why people gravitate towards it so much. But to me, I first encountered the word queer through literature, through, like, academia and mm-hmm. queer theory, which is textual analysis, right? Like, right. it's a, and Not I was like, hot. oh, this is a weird <laughs> journey for a word that, like, humans aren't 
texts and blah, blah, blah. And so I never really latched onto it. I think pansexual and fluid mm. out of all the words that I've read tend to kind of be the best. They kind of hit the mark the best. I haven't like made like an announcement to the world. Like just so everybody knows, you know, I, I've just gone about my life, but I certainly would fall into one of those a bit more. And then I want to talk a little bit about the book, but I want you to come on my other podcast and like talk about how you wrote the book. That's a whole nother conversation. Oh, sure. What's the <laughs> other podcast? It's called The Bleeders and it's about book writing and publishing. So kind of like the nitty gritty. The Bleeders? Like like that quote, writing's easy. All you have to do is sit at a... Exactly. Wait, who, who was that? That was... They say Hemingway, but I got a bunch of well actually guys emailing me and they're like, that's not right. But yeah, that's who it's attributed it to. It's attributed <laughs> yeah. to Hemingway. Yeah, all you have to do is sit at a typewriter and bleed. That is a great name for a Thank podcast you. about books. That's awesome. Yeah. So, but last thing before we get into book stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I talked to somebody else about this, and I think it's a really interesting subject because, you know, post Me Too, we're all about enthusiastic consent. And that doesn't necessarily exist in all spaces. And if you could kind of like speak to your experience with that. Well, I guess this is a really good time to plug my next book. <laughs> because, yeah, um, I'm contributing to an anthology collection called Unsafe Words, Queering Consent in the Me Too Era by Rutgers University Press. So that will be coming out pretty soon. And in that anthology, I, I don't want to give away too much, but one of the subjects I take on is the fact that consent activists right now are trying to standardize a model of consent that is hyper-communicative and enthusiastic and direct and involves, you know, verbal communication mm -hmm. before, during, and throughout. And that is a very heteronormative, like, mandate. Totally. Like, it kind of ignores so much of gay culture and so much of my sex life and everybody who participates in the same sex life that I participate in, like, sex clubs and bathhouses and slings and whatnot we all understand that if i walk into a gay sex party and some guy's in a sling with his legs spread i mean it's if I rude was, not to fuck him <laughs> like, like, like if i was to go up to him and say hey can i touch you and then a moment it would actually be like the worst thing like it's completely inappropriate in that moment and so there are there are circumstances like back rooms and you know, cruising areas where the rules of consent might look different. And I don't know if that's because of, I don't know why it works differently. I don't know if there's like a certain amount of male privilege there. I don't know why the rules are different, but clearly the same standard of consent doesn't exist everywhere. I think kinky people can really talk about this because we are kind of the masters of navigating nuance and consent mm -hmm. and a lot of the what's concerning is that a lot of the dialogue around consent now is kind of devoid of nuance like efforts to say that consent looks the same and requires the same dialogue in all situations to me is really concerning because that that seems like it's a little bit heavy-handed so let's talk about my love is a beast like i said i want to have a whole nother conversation about this but What's it about and what inspired it? I was at a hookup the other night and this guy said, hey, I'm not a big reader. I want like a one sentence definition of what your book is about. And I was like, <laughs> it's about my butthole. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> I mean, if you want like the super simplified definition that that works, that's what it's about. But I mean, it's obviously about a lot more than that. It's about like my parents and their religion and God and my sexual journey. But I mean, if we're really going to get like super reduced, it's about it's about my butt. The book is we build it as a memoir, but I still see it as a collection of essays. And each essay kind of takes on or talks about a point of discovery in my life. Uh, a kind of a I think your sex life kind of happens in like these big or at least my sex life happened in like these really kind of big defining mm-hmm. periods or moments and each I gave an essay to each big experience like turning HIV positive and my first fist and my going to a kinky event for the first time like I gave each kind of major life moment its own story and so that's what it's about what was the response? Well, I mean, it's been a bestseller on Amazon. But it was with kind of a small press, right? Yeah, it was with a, a really small press. And yet our distributor, I learned that I've been in the, the top five for 12 months. Whoa. By our distributor, which distributes a lot of presses. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's done pretty well. Um but it was, yeah, it was a small press and, and then thank goodness too, because if it had been a big press, they would have never let me, I mean, I talked to some big presses and I was like, I want to write like graphic depictions of fisting. And they were like, not with us, you're not. <laughs> so I went with a press that would let me publish what I want and would stand by it. And they did. And they have beautifully. Beyond the anthology, do you have another project coming up? I have a second book coming up. So I'm part of two anthologies, one by my, by the small press that published my first book. They're producing an, an anthology that should come out early next year. And then there's the anthology with Rutgers University Press, which I just mentioned. And then my second book, that's just my book, will come out. I think it's supposed to, supposed to come out in 2024. We'll see about that. Is it that. done? No. No. <laughs> no. Oh my God. Is it done? Are you kidding? So you're in Berlin, Germany right now. What brought you there? Berlin is a really good sex city. And that was a big part of the appeal about why I wanted to come here. But it really started because of a tattoo appointment. I wanted to get a tattoo and I was, it was I was just going to come here for the weekend <laughs> and get the tattoo and leave. And then I was like, well, I don't have a like a job job I can I don't have to only go for a weekend and then I was like maybe I'll go for a week and then I was like I found somebody who I can stay with and they were like you can stay as long as you want and I was like oh well how long can I stay like legally and it turns out you can stay here for three months without getting a visa so I was here for three months and then about one and a half months in I was like I think this is it (laughs) so I think I'm moving here cool yeah Well, this has been awesome. Is there anything else you would like listeners to know or you think is relevant to our combo? Um, Follow me on Twitter. (laughs) Yes, yes. Buy the the book. Buy My Love is a Beast Confessions from Unbound Edition Press. Um, It's available on Amazon or, um, but Amazon's evil. So anywhere books are sold, if, you know, it is a small press. So I, I encourage everyone to try and shop local and go to your local bookstore. But smaller presses obviously are harder to 
have representation at small bookstores right. and indie bookstores. But I always tell people to go to your favorite bookstore and ask them to order it. And then if they, for whatever reason, say no, which would be crazy, then order it online or whatever. So if you have to go through Amazon, if you have to go through Amazon and fine, fine but give me fine. a five star review. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yes, leave me five star review if you do it because Amazon takes a huge cut. So yeah, please leave me a nice review. And be on the lookout for book two and the anthology Unsafe Words. And the anthology from my publisher will be called The Experiment Will Not Be Bound, which is a really cool name. That is a cool name. What are your social handles again? Bad Alex Cheeves is my Instagram and my Twitter. Follow me on there. I do have a website, alexander-cheeves.com. Lovebeastly.com is where I answer sex and relationship questions. And I, they don't have to be queer. They can be from anybody of any gender or history or country or place or creed. And I publish, on average, I publish a post a week. So, and, on, and in each post, I answer three questions. So submit to me your wildest, craziest, kinkiest, dirtiest sex question i like i like the really extreme ones yes. so yeah send me the send me the good stuff <laughs> okay awesome thank you so much yeah thank you so much this was so cool thank you so much to alexander cheeves i had so much fun getting to know him i hope you guys did too Definitely give him a follow at Bad Alex Cheeves on social media and follow the show at Private Parts Unknown on Instagram and at Private Parts Un on Twitter. And to stay up on our episodes, make sure you're following us on your favorite podcast player. So just look down right now, hit follow, boom. We'd also like to stay in touch in between episodes via Substack. So subscribe to our newsletter at Private Parts Unknown substack.com there's a link in the episode description we made it super easy for you and shout out to amy roush for the bomb ass theme music for more info about amy and her music check out amyroush.com that's amy r-a-a-s-c-h.com this episode was mixed by my ride or die audio guy michael castaneda of plastic audio and after enjoying this content, could we ask you for a quick favor? Por favor. Just go to ratethispodcast.com slash private. Give us a five-star rating and review. It's social proof, guys. It helps other people find the show. It makes them want to listen. It makes me feel really good. Again, that's ratethispodcast.com slash private. Or if you're listening on Spotify, you just go to the upper left-hand corner of our page you click the star button, and then you click all five stars. Voila! You just made my day. Until next time, I am wishing you lots of horniness and happiness. And hey, maybe a gaping hole or two. Bye! Bye!